Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, February 2nd, 2006. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing. But usually I say we're all about making beer at home, but this week we're going to deviate a little bit and steer our attention to a noble ancestor of beer, mead. We'll talk to David Myers, chairman of the Mead for Redstone Meadery, about the upcoming International Mead Festival and about mead in general. We'll even get some tips on making our own. Well, if you remember last week, George in Erie, Colorado, asked for some advice on how to keep his beer warm in the fermenter during the chilly Colorado winters. Well, since I live in Arkansas and our winters are generally mild, this one more than most, I asked for some help from you, the listeners, and we got some great responses. Jerry in Tallahassee, Florida, uses a twist on a tip that we've heard in the past connected with cooling fermenters during lagering. Jerry says he ferments in a chest freezer, and when he needs to raise the temperature in the winter when fermenting ales, he uses old plastic milk jugs with hot or warm water. This is similar to using frozen jugs to make lagers, a tip that we've heard a few times here on the podcast. Drew from Elk Ridge, Maryland, says he uses a firm wrap to heat his carboy. Drew says the firm wrap is a 40-watt heating sheet where you can tape the firm wrap to the fermenter. He says, I used it to brew a saison where I wanted the fermentation temperatures up around 90 degrees. Drew says, I know 90 sounds high, but the saison yeast, uh, WLP uh, 565, loves it warm. The firm wrap is able to raise the temperature 20 degrees. He says, you can only tape a portion of the wrap uh, to get a lower temperature rise if you if you want. Jared in Brampton, Ontario had this tip. Uh, he says, I currently use a very simple solution, a somewhat shallow platform with a ceramic tile on the top and a light bulb underneath the tile, essentially a warming plate. Uh, Jared says, I figured that the ceramic tile was safer in terms of excess heat, but that doesn't seem to be a problem. He says, I have an aquarium sticker on the side of my carboy so I can monitor the temperature. And uh, Jared says, you can adjust the effective temperature by using different sized light bulbs or by putting a box over the carboy. And uh, I suggested to Jared that he might be able to hook up a dimmer uh, to the light bulb to get even more control. And he seemed to like that idea. Greg writes in from Wilmington, North Carolina and says, I have a spare room in my house where I put my fermenting bucket and I quickly realized that it was too cold to keep the process going. I put an electric radiator-style space heater in the room about 5 feet from the bucket and turned it on about 25% and kept the door open so it wouldn't overheat the room. Uh, Greg says, I checked the temperature about every hour and tweaked it until I got it just where I wanted. Uh, and Greg uh, finishes by saying, I had a crystal thermometer on the outside of the bucket, so I saw that it was the right temperature. Well, good advice all around. Uh, and also on the subject uh, of brewing equipment, Matt from Bedford, United Kingdom, writes, Just listening to the recent podcast and heard about the guy who got a fridge from his in-laws. Um, Matt says, Another suggestion for obtaining brewing equipment is freecycle.org. That's F-R-E-E-C-Y-C-L-E dot O-R-G. Uh, Matt says, It's a worldwide organization where people recycle things they want to get rid of, basically a big swap shop. Matt says, I just got hold of a fridge for lagering for free. That's uh, also great for getting empty beer bottles, Matt says. Well, that sounds like a deal. Um, thanks for everyone who has uh, written in with their tips. 
and I hope George and the others in colder climates can get some good use out of them. And I'll post a link to uh, all the websites that we'll talk about during this episode on uh, basicbrewingradio.com. A couple of bits of uh, news in the podcast world. A new episode of Basic Brewing Video is online this week. In this week's episode, Steve Wilkes and I bottle our six-pack IPA. Uh, Steve and I recorded a guest appearance for BigFoamyHead.com right before we bottled, and uh, Rick from Big Foamy Head uh, bet us that we wouldn't get a full six-pack of beer out of the batch. So he bet some homebrew, and uh, you'll have to tune in to see who won that bet and who's going to get some, some homebrew. Also, there's a new home for Basic Brewing Video. You can find it at uh, basicbrewingvideo.com. And special thanks to our web guru, Kelly Dodson, for help with the web design and implementation. And speaking along the lines of experimenting with small batches of beer, our friend Johan from Sweden has brewed a small batch of beer, four and a half liters, uh, using all grain. And uh, Johan has posted a web page with details of his experiment, and you can find a link to that page on basicbrewingradio.com. Thanks to Johan for sending that along and for his uh, continued support of the podcast. Also on the podcasting front, you might remember Brian Ellis from the KGB. That's the Kirkadal Grand Brewers uh, homebrewing club based in Houston, Texas. Brian and the KGB have launched a monthly show, soon to be a podcast, he says, on homebrewing. And I'll post a link to that show on the site as well. And best of luck to Brian and all of his crew. Well, now on to our interview with David Myers of Redstone Meadery. The International Mead Festival is coming up in Boulder, Colorado on February 10th and 11th. We took this opportunity to talk to David about the festival and about mead in general. On your business card, it says Chairman of the Mead for Redstone Meadery. What what does that entail? Uh, well, at the beginning, it, entail, it entailed everything. I, I was employee number one and did all the uh, tasks, and then over time we've been fortunate enough to to grow. But chairman of the mead actually comes from one of our uh, product lines, our Mountain Honey Wine has. All of our artwork is all unique, one-of-a-kind pieces done by a very good friend of mine who's done all of our imagery. And the title of the painting for for those lines is actually called Chairman of the Mead. And if anybody's actually seen our bottles, everything's very music-themed, and so it's basically a party going on. And I'm the guy in the chair. <laughs> so I wound up taking on uh, the title of Chairman of the Mead uh, through that, and uh, and it's been fun ever since. Now, do, are you an administrator, or are you, you the mead maker, or what, what do you do? Well, nowadays uh, I am uh, more national marketing and sales, getting distributors. We are we are in 16 states at this point. Uh, but in the beginning, as I said, it, it was I did everything. I, I made the mead. I picked up the phone. I, I put stuff in the mail, I went out and made sales calls, I delivered, I cleaned the, the tap lines for our draft products. You know, I started with all of it, because you know, I'm, I'm a home brewer, and that's that's where it all kind of got started for me. And as we've grown, I've kind of taken on more administrative and marketing and the face of the meadery, and, and I've really turned it over to, you know, really, really qualified people to be, to be making the meat, and, and, you know, we're very uh, happy to have you know, good mead maker uh, in Mason Thomas, and you know, just just out having fun. But you're the kind of boss that you can't BS because you've done it all and you know what they're talking about. <laughs> I, 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 I do manage to follow along, and it's always you know good to be able to 
no, you can always put the boots back on, and all the recipes are, are still my original home brews and such, so it's it's always a lot of fun to be tasting the meat, and as other people make it, it takes on other nuances, and, and that's very interesting to see as well. So we say that here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about homebrewing beer. So were you a beer homebrewer as well as a mead uh, maker? Yeah, and it, and it actually was. I started by making beer. I mean, I, I started making beer in uh, 1989, you know, long before there was a whole lot of information or, you know, uh, Charlie uh, Papazian's book. I don't think it even, I'm not sure if Joy of Homebrewing, it had to have been out by in its first edition by then. But, you know, I was buying homebrew uh, supplies out of the back of some old-timer's house uh, mm. uh, here in Boulder. And, and Colonel John was always great because the answer to, to any question was, hey, Colonel, you know, I want to make a brown ale, you know, what kind of hops? And the answer is always along, well... You can use anything you want to use. It, it just depends what you like. <laughs> and as a young homebrewer, I didn't really find that to be useful, very helpful <laughs> uh, in trying to learn things. But as I've been homebrewing a long time and then into the business and then people ask me about what they should do with their meads and such, it's amazing how quickly I've learned to get to, well, you know, it all depends what you like. <laughs> you can use any kind of honey or yeast that you want. <laughs> so, you know, clearly the colonel had, had wisdom beyond my, my uh, youth that I could understand, and uh, and it's all come full circle o over time. But, you know, I was making beer and enjoying that, and I was actually my first meet. I was actually in uh, over at uh, Charlie Papazian's home, uh, our local homebrew club here, the Hop Barley and the Ailers, uh, we were both members of, and Charlie had put up for auction for our fundraiser, pairs of tickets to go taste beer at his house. And hmm. I, I, I clearly had to do that. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and we were over there, and we, we finished the, uh, the beer, and right at the end, you know, Charlie was like, you know, you all want to try something really special? And he pulled out one of his prickly pear meads. And it was love. Hmm. And I was already brewing beer. I had all the equipment. I felt, I got to start making me some of this. <laughs> And, you know, through the experience of tasting meads of his, and then Paul Gatzer, who's the director of the Brewers Association and the former director of the American Home Brewers Association, I tasted some of his mead, and, you know, I just got inspired to make mead. And I made mead and made some mead and made up some more mead. And <laughs> one, one day I had, you know, I had like 30 carboys of mead going in my basement, and, you know, it was like, hey, you know, I should do this for a living. Mm -hmm. And, you know... Redstone is really kind of the basement come alive. Now, you know, every home brewer or every brewer that really gets into it thinks, you know, if I could do this for a living. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. You know, and if you, I could. And, and you can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, what, are, what were the challenges in, uh, in getting Redstone set up? And Well, certainly uh, still challenges. <laughs> they haven't gone away yet across the board. There are always new challenges every day, and, you know, that's. You know, definitely comes from, you know, fortunate enough to have success and, and be moving forward. You know, as a guy who was, what I always said, kind of a hack of a home brewer, <laughs> uh, the real challenges initially was, I'd been brewing beer and mead for, God, it must have been, you know, 11 years before I was bringing Redstone online. But I was never into the science of doing it. I just, you know, like to make beer. And, you know, I, I started making beer, you know, at a time in 89, 90, where in most parts of the country, 
you know, there wasn't the kind of craft selection there is today at, you know, fairly reasonable prices. You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't really there. And so I started brewing because I could brew better, stronger, cheaper. Yeah. And I kind of stopped using the hydrometer after, like, the third time. And, you know, I didn't care. You know, because I was doing, hey, I make beer that I like, it tastes good, and I know it's got alcohol. <laughs> uh, you know, that was kind of the, the, the working theory. So after 11 years of doing that, I actually had to learn the science of brewing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it'd be funny because I, I had a good friend who, who's a wonderful uh, brewmaster uh, consulting with me because, you know, I'd never been in the commercial business before. And so he helped me select the equipment, get things set up, and basically train me on my own equipment was, you know, it was just trying to figure out all these little nuances of, oh, that worked in the basement, but, oh, boy, that doesn't work here yeah. uh, in the commercial, and this works fine. And then I, I refer to it as, you know, we would go along fine just like out of the basement then we'd slam into a brick wall, and I would try to climb over it, dig under it, chew through it, get around it, figure it out, boom, get back on the track and go for a while and slam into another brick wall and go, okay, that doesn't work in the commercial uh, setting and change these little things and tweak it. But I was always trying to keep it very very true to the basement, as it were, in terms of really making sure the quality of the product was always sustained all the way out. So that, mm-hmm. that was an interesting challenge, you know, for me as as a home brewer, you know, one of the funny things that, you know, great story is, you know, I brewed my first batch ever. It was middle of the winter, and I was really concerned that the coolant system, which I thought was going to be the weakest, weakest link of the, of the equipment I bought, was, you know, I was worried about it failing, and the temperature would it'd ferment too high, and we'd get upper ethanols and have to wait through all those kind of, you know, jet fuel flavors for it to mellow back out, and that was my biggest concern. What it never occurred to me was in the middle of the winter, with the heat turned down in my in, in my warehouse overnight to conserve money, that it wasn't going to get too warm. It was going to be kind of chilly. <laughs> uh, and so I was trying to get a fermentation temperature of like 79, and I was all worried it was going to go like to 85 or 88 or whatever. And I came in, and it was at 65. Oh. And it was like, hmm, didn't think of that. <laughs> and I was like, but, you know, I was a home brewer. And so as a home brewer, I was like, well, what would I do if I had a cold carboy that I needed warmer? I was like, oh, I'd put a heat belt on it. Mm. It's like, well, you know, the heat belt like in that's not, you know, it's too small. And what else is kind of like a, I'm like, oh, electric blanket's kind of like a heat belt. And bungee cords would, and, you know, in the boots and wet from cleaning, middle of the winter, off to Target we go. <laughs> and I'm looking, I'm looking for electric blanket. You know, I'm like, oh, let's see, King Size. You know, I came back and I wrapped it up and plugged it in and by the time i came in the next day it was into the low 70s and you know we so for the longest time we used to you know we used to keep our small fermenters wrapped in electric blankets and i'd always tell people they're they're, they're not they're not scared they're just cold (laughs) you know so you know it was you know it was you know those kinds of you know funny little things you learn that you know with no commercial experience you know i really i really had no idea what i was doing so so this is a an, an occasion where Someone with uh, more commercial experience might have thrown up their hands, but you saw it as an opportunity. Absolutely. You yeah. know, it, it was really just, you know, finding our way. And, 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 it, and it, was, it was trying, and it was fun, and it was trying, and it was fun, and, 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 and I wouldn't have changed anything. Now, homebrewers home are some of the most resourceful people, uh, you know, that I know. Every time I throw a question out on the show... You know, what's your solution to this problem? All these 
these answers come back that I never would have thought of. Well, I would think, uh, you know, especially with homebrewers, you know, you ask uh, 10 homebrewers the same question, you know, you'll get about 14 answers. Yeah. <laughs> now, you know, as a, as a homebrewer, uh, you know, I've, I've heard it said that, you know, it's pretty easy to make a good beer, but to make that same beer twice, that's, you know, where the challenge is. Is that the same way with the large-scale commercial uh, mead making? Well, you know, certainly, you know, to an extent. I mean, I think a lot of things, especially on uh, commercial levels, just like, you know, commercial beer, you know, brewing and, uh, and, and such that, you know, depending what you're trying to do, I think, you know, having the commercial equipment allows you to dial in and be, you know, where you have an idea of where you're at. We, you know, we have two, we actually, well, we have three distinct product lines, but our two main ones are, are Nectars, 8% carbonated. They're made fast, quick. They're meant to be young, enjoyed young and fresh. Now, what, uh, what is a Nectar? Explain, you know, pause along the way. Remember, we don't, we don't, we're not <laughs> fluent in the, in the words of mead. But, uh, well, Nectar, you know, like, like all, all product lines, you know, we have, you know, made up name, you know, product line names. Hmm. So Nectar stems from mead always being known as, has traditionally been known as Nectar of the Gods. Mm-hmm. And so Nectar is a product line for us. So it's and not it's, a category of mead that everyone would recognize. Nah, okay. stri- yeah, strictly made up. Marketing. Strictly made up. <laughs> and for us, Nectar is 8% alcohol and carbonated, and then we have different flavors inside that line. Our second line is called Mountain Honey Wines, and they're all going to be 12% alcohol and non-carbonated. Hmm. And so, you know, and the all mead, you know, it's just different reference points to call different style, you know, very distinctly different styles. And in the Mountain Honey Wine, you know, we have up to seven going at any one time. Wow. Kind of thing. And so we, you know, we try to, you know, mead is the oldest beverage no one's ever heard of. And so a lot of our work to, you know, to, to the masses is education. Mm-hmm. They got a, you know, they have a a conception of mead that is very singular. They think of it as a big, sweet dessert wine type of product that you know you'd only want small amounts of. And where I've had wonderful big, sweet dessert style meads, and there's nothing wrong with those kinds of meads. Mead is a wildly diverse beverage category. I tell people if grape wine was a category, it would be a huge category. Well, mead is the same way, and so it can be high in alcohol, low in alcohol. It can be sparkling or still. It can be dry or it can be sweet. It can have fruits. It can have spices. And just like different grapes make different grape wines, different honeys make different honey wines. So mm-hmm. the range is very, very large, and I think that's one of the education pieces that we have to uh, work with people on, and that's why our company actually you know, created three distinct product lines because it's well those eight percent nectars don't taste anything like those 12 percent mountain honey wines and even the mountain honey wines in amongst themselves taste very different but yet we can say to everybody but it's all mead Mm -hmm. and that's where you know the real you know the real challenge is in our industry yeah, I was lucky enough to attend your mead tasting at the Great American Beer Festival. Yeah, that's a fun one, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, uh, you know, going from table to table, you you didn't know what to expect, or I didn't know what to expect. I liked everything. But, you know, there were even some, a mead or two that were mixed with grape 
uh, wines, or it seems like, and and it, it seems you know it seems like that the mead and the honey are so flexible, you know that that you could use it in just about any way that you wanted to. Right, and it's really you know it's not just about dessert wines; it's also about you know dinner wines and be, you know meads for the bar. You know our nectar products we do into cocktail mixes, hmm. and it's been really it's been really fun because. With a lot of pride, I say that Redstone Meadery is one of the real drum beaters for the mead industry. And I'm a real rising tide floats all boats kind of guy. And right now, I believe we need more meaderies making quality mead throughout the country so as to grow you know, the actual category. Because mead is a very tiny segment right now, but I think it's a tiny segment back to, well, it's the oldest beverage no one's ever heard of, so it's kind of tough to sell. What kind? What kind of reach do you have? I mean, what? How far do you get out there in the marketplace? What? What is your market share? Uh, you know, that's you know, that's one of the things. As uh, as someone very dedicated to the mead industry, we're still trying to determine that. Not just for Redstone, but one of the things uh, uh, myself and uh, Julia Hers, who has a company called Honeywine.com, and I definitely recommend for your listeners, uh, you know, three great websites uh, to go get mead information. Honeywine.com gotmead.com and aboutmead.com uh, great research areas but Julia and I have actually founded the International Mead Association and we are working on trying to get the meaderies to you know we, we need to get a, a similar message we need to work together we need to talk each other up you know we need to you know keep building this industry right now I don't really think of anybody as a competitor I think of them you know as, as brothers in arms Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of thing because we all are trying to create a revolution and that'll be one of the things you know for for your listeners is it's all about ask for mead because if you're not asking they're not getting it mm-hmm. and and it's really you know something that you know we look at it as a revolution and in the revolution you get people a few at a time and you get them to go get some people and you get them to get a few more people and you know, it has to spread, and we're really trying as a, you know, to make mead into a, a really recognized category. And it seems like to me that once you've tried mead, you want to try some more mead. Absolutely. Different, different brands, different kinds. And, and that's one of the things, exactly. I mean, I always, you know, tell people, you know, for us, you know, they got to try it to buy it if mm. they haven't had it before. And it's not just our mead, it's other meads. You know, it is, it's tough to get things into consumers' hands. But yes, once you begin to to try things, you know you really it's like wow, this is good. What other kinds of meats? I mean, it's like you know it's it's like enjoying cabernets. You're not just going to get one and only drink that one. If you like cabernets, you're going to look for other cabernets to drink. If you like, you know, if you if if you like pale ales, you're going to look for other pale ales or other stouts or whatever it is you like to drink. Those are the things you're going to explore from company to company to company, and meat is no different. You know, that roots party is, you know, that's always a lot of fun. It's, we call it a get-back-to-your-roots party because since we throw it at the, the Great American Beer Festival and we, of course, are getting all the brewers and that kind of thing attending, we try to remind them where they came from <laughs> since meat is the original alcohol. So that, that's how we kind of came up with our get-back-to-your-roots. But a lot of the meads there, of course, they're all of, uh, all of our product line there, but we had meads that were from the International Mead Festival. And this is an event that's coming up on February 10th and 11th of this year. And it is the largest commercial mead competition anywhere in the world. 
and a lot of the meads you had that day were they were all from that from that event and we were obviously two two weeks out from from doing this uh this event again this year and this year we have 96 meads uh, registered from around the world wow and once again many of them uh not available in the united states so it's you know the only place uh well i guess in Unless you get an invitation to our roots party, that you uh, c- you can taste these products. Uh, occasionally, I'm seen throughout the uh, country doing mead education nights, so there are a few extra chances. Uh, but you have to catch me when you can. Now, of those 96 meads, uh, will attendees to the to the festival will they be able to taste all of those? Yes. Wow. Well, probably they would need two sessions. Mm-hmm. Possibly three, but we only have two sessions. <laughs> but yes, they will all be available. Uh, uh, for sampling to the public, uh, anything that is competing then needs to be on the floor. Wow! So it's it's really exciting. We have uh, meads and people coming. I mean, this is what's really so exciting. I mean, we have mead this year coming from South Africa, and the mead makers coming to pour his mead. We got it. We have our second Australian meadery entering uh, this year, and those folks are coming to the festival to pour their meads. We have a gentleman, uh, actually a couple groups coming from Poland. Uh, who, are, who are pouring their meads. we got folks coming down from Canada to pour their meads. So it's not just an opportunity to taste the meads. I believe it's something like two-thirds of our, of our companies that are participating will be behind the table pouring their mead. So it's usually the mead makers. Occasionally it's just representatives of the company. Uh, but it's a great chance. It's not just about trying all these meads. It's that you get to talk to the people who are making them and selling them and have intimate knowledge with them. So if you're a home brewer and you're interested in making meads and you taste something wonderful there, there you got the expert to talk to to give you some hints. You, you know, if you, if you if it's not available in your area, <laughs> you so know, what? you, you got to make get, it. And, and it's great stories. I mean, you know, we're, we're a creative lot. Also with the competition this year, and of course it'll be too late for your listeners to enter this year, but if they are mead makers, they want to think about it for next year, is this year we actually added an home brewing side to the mead festival oh. so for the first time it is both amateur and commercial obviously the amateurs judge only but we in our first year this was great i mean we were, we were just we were just so pleased with with the results and people were so excited 212 entries in our first year for the home brew side wow so with the 212 and the 96 we as of record i we believe are the largest uh, mead competition in the world this year. Wow! Congratulations. It was it, we we felt great about it. I mean, we when we started, when we know home brewing. Some it takes a little time to build up a competition and to get that kind of a turnout on our first year. Uh, actually, frightens us for next year because <laughs> we you know because then you have to judge two hundred and twelve meads. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so well, and, but we actually did it in one uh, one seating just just uh, just last Saturday. We we got through. 212 entries got judged last week. Wow. And then what, what's very fun with the, with the homebrewer side of it is the final round, which will be judged on-site at the International Mead Festival, is mostly going to be commercial mead makers will be uh, deciding the final round. Uh-huh. And that's something very unique we have to offer uh, in our home, homebrew uh, mead competition, uh, to be able to offer a commercial panel for the, for the final round. Yeah, if you if you guys will help me remember for next year, I can, you know, tell our homebrewers who are listening, you know, uh, ahead of time, so that maybe they can help swamp you with entries for next year. Right, absolutely. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll make sure we get everything linked up for next year to to announce when we uh, do call for entries. 
And you've all, along with the tasting, you've also got uh, seminars yes, we with do. some uh, some notable folks uh, giving presentations. We do. We have uh, we have four wonderful uh, seminars uh, starting, especially for the for the homebrew world. Ken Schramm, who is the author of the Complete Mead Maker, uh, is actually going to be doing kind of an advanced melomel uh, seminar. And uh, you know, for those who who know Ken either by, by his book or as the uh, organizer of the Mazer Cup for many years, uh, or if you've ever had the pleasure, as I have, to, to have tasted Ken's meats mm. before, uh, right there you already know that it, this, this seminar is going to be well worth attending. Uh, we also have the, uh, the uh, uh, gentleman who comes down from Intermeal, and I'm probably butchering the name of his company, but it's in Quebec, uh, who will be discussing uh, just basics of quality mead making, uh, his company last year actually swept the Melomel category uh, in, in, and also took the gold two years running with his black currant mead. And again, if people have been out to the festival and tasted this, this is this is a wonderful mead. He actually inspired me uh, last year with his, with his sweep, sweep of the category. I came home determined to make something, not to let him do that again. Uh, <laughs> so we'll, we'll see how, I, how we did uh, here soon. And then on uh, on our other two seminars is actually I had mentioned the the uh, gentleman from South Africa who's coming out and he is a uh, doctor of biology and so he's going to uh, do do a uh, seminar first and uh, then Dr. Chris White from White Labs is going to do a, uh, a yeast seminar mead yeast seminar and and those are those are split up on on. Uh each of the two days, yeah, two, it's basically two per day. Two on each day. Uh, I, don't, I don't actually. If, if you go to the website meatfest.com, and I'll put a uh, link on our site as well. Right. It has you know it has all the information uh, in terms of uh, who's speaking on which night. Uh, the seminars are part of the ticket price. It, it is a uh, it is a bargain at twenty nine dollars advance. Gets tasting glass and program and entry to seminars and of course there are the ninety six meads. Uh, and such and oh yeah those uh, and, and it's and it's held at a hotel and we try to keep it all kind of you know we try to keep amongst ourselves in terms of you know we book out the whole hotel and uh, people can get great uh, great discount rooms and they can go through the website and find all the hotel info uh, so it's it's come on out it's it's fun <laughs> well I, I wish I could come out and I'm and I'm arranging for someone to come out there in my stead you know. Uh, as a stringer, so that you know we can get some coverage. Uh, so hopefully that will uh, will work out. Uh, now I can't let you get off the phone without getting some practical advice for you know our home brewers and our mead makers. And uh, I'll share my I make one mead recipe, and I'm I'm pretty much stuck on that because I like it, and that's what. <laughs> you see, right? If you shouldn't stop making it, you should just add more to you know just make more mead. Well, you're right. But my recipe, are you ready? You might want to take, get a pencil to write this down. I, 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 there's going to be a quiz afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I take 10 or 12 pounds of honey, uh-huh. uh, five gallons of water, some champagne yeast, and uh, some yeast nutrient. That's it. What kind of, what kind of honey do you use? Uh, well, I use, uh, I've been using local honey uh, from a farmer. It's not, you know, he's, he's just out on, the, out on the farm, you know, so it's not any kind of a varietal. But, it, you know, I, I prime the bottles. So it comes out sparkling and clear and crisp and clean and a whole lot like champagne. So very dry and simple. What are you What are wonderful. you uh, priming the bottles with? Uh, just three quarters uh, of a cup, just like a beer. Three quarters of a cup of uh, corn sugar per five gallons, and that's it. Right. It's, mean, the, it's the world's and, most simple and, and, mead. And it, so, it sounds like a nice mead, and, and there's a great example of that kind of a mead 
the honey you use is going to be very important. Sure. Because, sure. you know, it's going to be, you know, your flavor is coming basically from the honey and, and the champagneus. And so if you use a more neutral honey, like a clover, and clover honey is great for lots of things, but I'm personally, I don't think it makes for a great traditional meat, mm-hmm. just because it's kind of neutral, so you don't get a lot of flavors. So there's a, you know, you really, there's an example of, oh, you want real flavorful honeys. Uh, things that I like to do when we do this at Redstone is I like using more than one kind of honey in every mead I make. I just find that the the melding of two flavors into one flavor provides mm. a, a true uniqueness and, 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 and a, a, a depth that I think is very difficult to achieve in just single varietal honeys. And that's something that, you know, it doesn't have to be a lot of a second honey. You know, it can be 10, 20, you know, I'd say at least 20% of, of a secondary honey. Just because, you know, and that's a personal thing with me. I do that with, you know, coffees, olive oils, uh, you know, any number any number of things that I, that I like to consume. <laughs> You're I a like, meddler. I like melding of flavors <laughs> and finding my own flavor based on taking a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Now, are there are there varieties of honey that you don't want to use, or pretty much is it if if you like the the taste of the honey it, and its right, raw it form, all it's depen- good. It all depends what you like. You can use any <laughs> any kind of honey with any kind of mead. That sounds familiar. I've heard that. You know, and that's and but that is really what it is in the end. And it's amazing, even just the, changing the mixture slightly or flip flopping them. You know, to to take six you know six parts one honey, three parts another, and then do a flip flop of the two, and it will be an amazing difference in in the flavor profiles. And then just like beers, you know, different yeasts are going to give you different flavors. And, well, oddly enough, it all depends what you like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, those kinds of things. But, I mean, that's, you know, I mean, obviously what you have there is a good basic 12% alcohol or so mead recipe. Now, to get a sweeter mead, do you stop the fermentation partway through the process? Or do you, do, do you rely on the, on the yeast profile to give you that sweetness? We actually, on, on, you know, on a commercial, and this is where, you know, there are going to be some differences in the commercial and the home brewing. And what I would do, you know, myself, if I was, go, you know, throwing a home brew batch, would still be different. Commercially, you know, we need to, con- you know, we got to control some things. You know, we can't just send the bottles out and hope, <laughs> hope someone opens them before they blow up uh, out on the shelf. So, you know, we wind up having to do more controlling of our meads. We do actually stop them on the way down. Uh, as a home brewer, as a general rule of thumb, you know, I just, I just say let her go. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, patience is the thing you need the most as a home brewer. I would agree with that. You know, so especially and, you know, even with on meads. your basic little basic mead recipe, I'd encourage you on you know maybe split it on one of the times and throw a little bit of fruit in. You know, do everything the same. I'll tell you the way you're going with that champagne. A little bit, a little bit of raspberry. Mm. Raspberries added to it. Maybe not even a lot of it. You know, could make for a really nice combi- you know uh, combination. So how how much for a five gallon batch? If I were going to put raspberries in there, I how- mean, if you're if you want a raspberry mead where raspberry is your dominant flavor. And you're using you're using fresh, probably about you know five to seven pounds for that size. Mm. If you're wanting to have some raspberry character, but not necessarily necessarily have raspberries be the dominant, then you know you could be a lot more in the two to three pound. And and do you do that in the secondary? And do you pasteurize? Get us into details here, right. David. Well, Help you know, us out. It's, it's funny because of course it really comes back to well you know if you if you ask if you ask ten mead makers when they put <laughs> the fruit in you'll get eleven answers. 
personally, I was a lazy home brewer, and so I liked adding my fruit and my spices into secondary. So if I was doing the, your mead, I'm going to guess that I'm, it's going to ferment. Primary is going to be three to four months, give or take. And as it's slowing down, but still active, I would then rack it into the onto the raspberries. And the reason I'm doing it now is by having the alcohol in the in the mead already. Now I'm not worried about like pasteurizing my fruit or having uh, to affect my fruit. So you don't so, pasteurize at all, right? So what I would do there is if I got you know if I got you know ra- using raspberries as, as the example, I'd buy them at the store. I'd bring them home. I'd wash them off. I'd shove them into the carboy, and I'd rack the meat onto them. Hmm. And I wouldn't do anything else. Well, that sounds easy. Well, I was, you know, or lazy. I mean, one, of, one of the two. But, you know, I was looking for the, you know, I didn't want to affect any more fruit flavors. Uh, I believe in pasteurization because we don't add sulfites to, to any of our products. So we pasteurize our honey. And I pasteurize, you know, that's right out of the basement. I pasteurized my meads at home, too. Hmm. Uh, and that's the balance of, okay, I got to heat it up some uh, because I got to, you know, I got to make sure there's no wild yeast or anything else that's going to give me problems. But I don't want to boil it or have a hot break because that's going to work against the aromatics of the honey. The, uh, the uh, It's going to play against the flavor profiles of the honey. Uh, and people, some people boil and do you know, hot breaks and skim. Or in the commercial world, there's something called ultrafiltration, which is essentially filtering the honey into the mixing pot. So they're stripping some things out of it. Some people use sulfites. And I've had good mead made all three ways. Mm. Personally, I don't want to add sulfites, and I'm a big believer in the pasteurization process. But that's that's just me. I've had great mead made the other two ways as well. So would you would you mix the honey in with the water and bring it up to what, or would you? No, actually we do. It's kind of a, it's the opposite way. You heat, we heat the water, and this is again. I did this both at home and then carried it over to the commercial side. Is uh, you heat the water. Uh, at home, probably 170, 180 degrees. We do 180 here at the meadery, uh, and then I, you know, I like to have heat my honey up separately while it's still in its tubs and stuff. And you can do this as simple as a little bit in the microwave, hmm. or you, you know, you can put it into a hot bath and let it heat up like that. Some, but you know, I want the honey to to have some temperature to it as well. You know, at least 60 or 70 degrees, and then you know, you got your water. You, you, you dump it into your 180-degree water. You want to make sure you take it off the heat first uh, so you don't get any burning on the bottom. And you'll, you'll basically stir vigorously as you're dumping your honey in off heat. And if things go really well, and, you, you, know, and you'll, you know, it's kind of like your own thing. You've got to learn your own temperatures. But, you know, get your water to whatever level you need to so when you add your honey and stir it in without ever having to turn the heat on again, it's going to be between, like, 150 and 160. Okay. And at home, I would only hold it there for 20 minutes. We do it for 30 minutes in the meadery, but again, you know, we can't have things launching off shelves or <laughs> anything weird happening like that. But, you know, it's just, you know, so you'll have to dial in your own system to figure out. But it's basically you don't want to turn the heat on again. You just want to stir it in, let it go, 20 minutes, chill it off with the wort chiller, and, 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 and get your yeast added in as you transfer in. Now, I've, I've never heated my honey. And in fact, the last batch of mead that I that I did, I just mixed um, a I had a carboy a, a five gallon carboy of mineral water, and I mixed in the honey just cold, and pitched the yeast and aerated and and off it went. Was I just lucky, 
or stupid or what? <laughs> I mean, it I, came I, I out great. I don't know if I know you well enough. To, uh, <laughs> but no, it's, you know, I don't think, no. I think, uh, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of articles that I've seen out there that, you know, we talk about just the cold water mixing and the whole heating thing is not necessary. And um, I think there's certainly credence to it. I think more than anything, it's, 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 it's what you personally are satisfied by doing and, and the results you get. Kind of a level of comfort. Right, and it's kind of what I said before with the whole, I've had good mead made many kinds of ways. So in, in no sense, you know, I've never believed, oh, I'm making it right and they're making it wrong. I believe, well, this is how I like to make it and it gives me the end product I'm happy with. I guess the, the, mead, the proof of the mead is in the tasting. If it tastes good and it's shelf-stable, it doesn't blow up, right. I guess you did it right that right. time. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, what about uh, what about spices? You said you added your your fruit and spices in the secondary. Yeah, I mean we do we do a couple spiced meads at at, uh, at Redstone, and these are again all of our meads for the most part, just about all of them are old homebrew recipes of mine that you know I just altered mostly. You know I made them a little uh, lighter in body and and, and such uh, for for a more uh, wider appeal. Kind of thing, and as and as I learned more about mead, I learned to make varying kinds of meads. But you know, the two that have carried over from my homebrew days is actually uh, the second mead I ever made, which was a juniper berry mead, and then I think it was like the fourth mead I ever made, which became a, a long-standing tradition uh, for for myself, and and now is a tradition for for our company is uh, for the winter solstice, uh, a vanilla bean cinnamon stick mead. Ooh. And so, you know, both are, you know, from early, early batches of mine. And, uh, you know, that's just, uh, you know, all part of the, you know, they're great flavor profiles. And, you know, you can throw anything in a meat. I mean, I once made a roasted garlic meat. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, tasted like garlic. Yeah, well, if you like garlic, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I entered it into a homebrew competition, you know, because it went into Melamel, since that's fruit and vegetable. And, I was hoping I would be served early in the round so I'd just trash all the pallets and everything else would taste like garlic after that. I didn't, I, I didn't win anything, but it was, it was the talk of the competition. <laughs> Trying to sabotage. The, uh, I was and, and so you, curious. And, you, you know, you, I wish I'd been there. So, you know, talking about unusual meads, one of the funnest meads I ever had, you know, homebrew, that was interesting and, and good, uh, was it was a red bell pepper mead. Oh. And all the guy did was, you know, he went to the supermarket, bought red bell peppers, washed them off, cut them off, cut them up, and you know, throw them in in, in the secondary. And oh, it's fabulous! Huh. It's fabulous. I'll be darned. Uh, across the board, and you know, it just goes to show you can put you can put anything in there. <laughs> and that's the beautiful thing about mead. That's why I really like mead. Is you know, mead is. Well, I mean, I'm of the belief that it, it must be the easiest thing to make because I make it. <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, it is that wide diversity. It is, you know, especially as a home brewer, what was so nice is, you know, if you don't like what you got, you can change it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't really do that that much with a beer or if you're, you know, making one, you know, doing one of those wine kits or something. You don't have as much of those options. But a mead... You know, if it's too dry, add some honey into it. If it's too sweet, get some yeast going and restart it. If there's something a little off in it, throw a whole bunch of fruit. It's a mellow mouth. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, you know, you can, you know, it, you, you're not stuck with what you got. But you need to be patient to let what you got truly show itself. I mean, you know, 
mediocre meads can become good meads. Mediocre meads can't become great meads over aging, but mediocre can become good just by you know letting it sit in the cabinet and letting it age out. You know, a lot of people get all free because you know they probably had fermentation temperatures too high and they get these upper ethanols and you know that's the rocket fuel kind of taste. Mm. And though that's not an ideal thing to go for, it doesn't mean that you're stuck with that flavor. It just means you're probably at least stuck with it for a while. And if you give it a you know you give it a a uh, a year or four, I mean, it kind of depends what it tastes like. You know, a lot <laughs> of times stuff will still kind of come around uh, if if you're patient. But you know, when we you know, good example still, you know, the home brewer guy trying to become the commercial guy in my stories was, you know, we made our nectar products first, and we had a couple of them, and then it became time to make the twelve percent uh, alcohol line and start debuting that. And I was at that point, I had I had one uh, actually Julia hers. Uh, who I'd mentioned before from Honeywine.com, joined me as as, uh, my first employee. And where I destroyed arm was, uh, for those early years, was, you know, I was like, well, what should I make? And she's like, oh, you got to make a traditional. You know, that traditional is the benchmark. It's it's the purest form. You have to, you know, it's got to be a traditional. And I'm just like, well, you know. That's the hardest thing to make because there's nowhere to hide. You know, (laughs) Pilsner. You know, it's great if you hit it, but you know, not you know, not so good if you miss. Yeah, yeah. uh, kind of thing. And you know, I I was like, well, you know, let me think about it. And I came in the next morning, and I was like, you know, I had the home brewer's mentality. I'm like, yep, I'm going to make the traditional. Something wrong with it? It's going to be a (laughs) melomel. And it it always, fortunately, stayed a traditional. But it really was. It was the that that's how it all was and started, and, and that's what we did. Now that you mentioned patience, now if if you're a home brewer, uh, it may be a good thing to have several carboys of meads going at once because, you know, to really from start to finish to really get a good mead, it may take a year or maybe more before yeah, you really well, start well, enjoying you're it. Making a big dessert mead, I mean, I mean a real good giant, you know, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. You know, I've had some home brewers that you know it was like year four or five before they really hit their prime. Mm. Uh, kind of thing, and that's you know. I mean, I made a decision, you know, probably like two or three years into after I started making mead was you know the problem with mead was it took so long to make, and you had to be really patient that every bottle you opened felt like it had to be a special occasion. Yeah. You know, every mead yeah. is sacred, you know, kind of thing. And uh, you know, what do you? And so I was like, you know, I want to drink mead. I don't want to just feel like every bottle has to be a special occasion, and we're just going to have a little amount or this kind of thing. I want it mead around to be drinking so i kind of set out over a period of a few years to make a ridiculous amount of mead <laughs> that way you know at once cert- suddenly as those came mature i would now have mead you know it would be there different flavors different kinds drier sweeter mediums fruited traditional spice you know and very very set out and so the first year i started and i made like probably like 30 gallons that year and the second year, I had set out to make, like, 60, and I wound up accidentally making 90. <laughs> uh, so that was a good year. Good, good, good year. <laughs> and then the following year, it was probably, like, 60 again, 70. And a few, you know, and after that, it kind of started maintaining more like a, you know, just 40, 50 gallons a year kind of thing. And suddenly, you know, two, three years went by, I had some meat. <laughs> Had a lot of it, and that was, you know, I mean, if you want to have mead, yeah, you got to commit for a few years just to get, you know, because once you get your stock up, it's not like you're blowing through it so fast that you can't keep your stock up. Mm-hmm. It's just the that first, you know, you got to get over the first hump. 
And I, fi- I figured out after my first few batches, my first few batches I bottled in champagne bottles, you know, the big honking right. champagne bottles. But then I figured out, you know, then that was really painful to open one of those. <laughs> right, you really had to be. You know, because that's a whole lot of mead. But if you bottle them in, in 12-ounce beer bottles, then that, you know, you can get like three champagne flutes out of one uh, 12-ounce beer bottle. Right. Mead uh, made me come back to bottling. Mm. You know, like like any good home brewer, I washed my first keg for some beer, and I never bottled a beer again. <laughs> you know, but uh, but mead had brought me back to bottles, and I agree. I mean, I went for all shape bottles. You know, I went from like little six or eight ounces to a lot of twelves, and then some bombers, and then a few wine bottles. That way, you kind of had a uh, what part? You know, wh- how many people am I sharing this with? I can choose what size bottle I grab. Mm-hmm. Well, David. I uh, I think that I've, I've had a blast. This this uh, most of an hour has has gone by in a hurry. It, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. I love I love kind of talking on, on the homebrew side, and it's been a long time since I've had a chance to th- think of some of those old stories of when we were just <laughs> trying to get it all up, as well as the the, the home brewing thing. So it's really, it's really always fun. You know, we you know I'm a I'm a home brewer, and and I've been a home brewer a long time. And I've been very tried to be very supportive in the home brewing community. We have a great one here locally. You know, we have these uh, cobalt blue swing top bottles. And since we have many of them that get poured samples out, and then we don't have a use for the bottle again, we have a deal with the local home brewers. You can have a dozen bottles. You just got to bring one back full. Ah. And so you know, we we you know, I love I love the home brewers. You know, it's where I started, and and it's where I where I always want to be. Well, hopefully, we can have you on again. It'd be my pleasure. Thanks, David. Have a good day. I want to thank David Myers again for taking time to talk to us. You can find links to the International Mead Festival and all the organizations that David mentioned in our conversation on basicbrewingradio.com. Well, next week I hope to talk to Chris Colby of Brew Your Own Magazine about one of my favorite topics, pale ales. And in a couple of weeks we'll continue our tasting of bad beers that we started last week. I thought we needed a couple of weeks of a palate cleansing in between those. If you have brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com, and please don't forget to tell us where you're from. I'm still getting feedback from those who have purchased the pre-release version of our all-grain DVD. I appreciate all the good comments and suggestions we've got so far, and from what I'm hearing, I think we're on the right track. Uh, I'm still offering the all-grain DVD in its pre-release form for a short time longer. Uh, I'm editing now for the uh, the final version, and we're getting the, the cover art done. So we're getting closer. Um, so not not much longer on the offer, but you can find out more at basicbrewing.com slash grain. And if you're wanting to get into home brewing for the first time, uh, while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step-by-step, and you can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD. And uh, if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it online, and I'll send you one myself. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website is provided by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.